from 11FS, I'm Laura Watkins. And I'm Sarah Koshansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you the gender pay gap, Amazon take on India and possibly partner with JP Morgan, and nuns take on Wells Fargo. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to Fintech Insider News. We are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Allgate. I'm Laura Watkins, sometimes known as Producer Laura, and usually I can be found on the other side of the mics, writing and producing the show and generally keeping an eye on proceedings. But today, I've handed that all over to Ollie, and I'm stepping up for International Women's Day and making my FinTech Insider News debut. Um, alongside me and co-hosting the show, adding a bit of professionalism and having my back is the one and only Sarah Kachansky. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Do I still have to say thank you for having me or do you just assume that I'm going to be here now? No, I just assume you're here at this point. <laughs> How has International Women's Day been for you? It's been excellent. I was over at uh, Finnovate today and they actually had a really good distribution of, of female speakers. I was really impressed. That's a strong start for International Women's Day. So uh, enough about us, let's introduce our guests. So joining us today, we have a fantastic panel of women. First up, we've got Caroline Plum, CEO of Fluidly. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. It's awesome to be here. Is this your fourth time? It is my fourth time. Yeah, so fourth time lucky, hopefully. Right, I'm sure it will be. Uh, Next up, we've got Veronique Constanz, 11FS Programme Manager, who is making her FinTech Insider debut as well. Say hi, Veronique. Hi, Laura. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Um, And lastly, we've got Laurel Wolf, Marketing Director at Klarna, who is also making her FinTech Insider debut. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. A little bit nervous, though. That's okay. (laughs) So am I. (laughs) All right. So uh, we have women, we have wine, and we have news. So let's start the show. Um, We're going to kick off today with one of the bigger stories of the moment um, and a slightly contentious issue for International (laughs) Women's Day. Uh, We are talking about the gender pay gap and this story in The Times stating that investment banks face fury over the gender pay gap. Uh, Sarah, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So um, this is this is a following up from uh, a, a, basically a British piece of legislation which has said that any company with more than 250 employees has to disclose the gap between the average earnings and bonuses of male and female staff before April 4th. So for people in America, that's the end of the British tax year. Don't ask me why it ends in April. I'm still not quite sure. Anyway, um, the point being that we've had, you know, quite a few companies, retailers and um and even, you know, the financial services companies have already disclosed their gaps. But a lot of the investment banks have been holding back. And it's no real surprise why. Um, some of the figures that have come out, um, if you look at Barclays, so for basic pay, excluding bonuses, there was a median hourly gap of 43.5% at Barclays. So that's bad enough. Um if you look at, uh, that does include the investment banking business, but if you look at the bonus difference, it's 73%. Um, and it's quite clear that a lot of these investment banks are, or, or I think it's quite clear to me, um, are scrabbling around trying to work out how to make themselves look good. Because if, if Barclays is in enough trouble for having a 43.5% gap, what on earth the investment banks are going to look like, I, I have no idea. It, it's not going to be a surprise to anybody, but I think the point being that the Times article makes this clear that there's a some heavy internal PR going on before they release these numbers. And they don't have a choice. They're going to have to do it. They're just trying to work out how. Um, so I don't know if uh, anybody else has an opinion on this one. Yeah, well, look, I am all for transparency. Uh, I think it is super important. A big believer of that. What gets measured gets done. So I'm thrilled that they were establishing a baseline. But people don't cheat. So, you know, first of all, the professional services firms, a bunch of them have started classing their partners as owners so they don't have to disclose the information about the gap, the huge gap between 
you know, women's salaries and male salaries at partner level. And I think, you know, if you're going to be transparent and talk about it, then let's publish the data as a kind of good starting point, as a, you know, somewhere to kind of start off from. And you know what, you can't polish a a lipstick a pig let's say Um, but at least we all kind of know where we stand and I think there's a difference between the kind of a pay gap generally and a pay gap when you've got different you know women being paid different amounts for the same role and actually I suspect the gap there isn't as bad Um, but let's get the data let's have a look at it and then we can make a a plan there's a good point like transparency um, is is obviously what we're aiming for and we obviously know that there's going to be a pay gap so like why try and cover it up like it's not a surprise at this stage so you might as well be honest with what your figures are and then improve them rather than lie about them at the first instance and this is and this is all just about reporting what what is the situation there isn't any solution being offered as well i think i think to, to go back to caroline's point the really interesting point about this and you're absolutely right this is data and you know there is always a gender pay gap and you have to calculate you know women taking time out and women entering you know the workplace later but i think the really interesting about the investment bankers is we probably are going to see some gaps for people who do the same job i'm making air quotes by the way it's a podcast um like i think i think this is one of these areas we might i think that's why they're struggling because we're actually going to rather than them saying oh we can explain this by this lady having some maternity leave or that person you know joining at a later point we are actually going to see people in investment banks who technically have the same job but are being paid less because of that bonus thing as well i would not be surprised but i think this is the first year you have to publish it right so just get all the bad news out there <laughs> yeah. just be transparent let's establish the baseline even if it's terrible you can the only way is up so you know why try and fudge it or hide it at this point yeah and it says in this article that uh only 1,486 have so far published their figures, which sounds like a big number. And then it goes on to say it's estimated that 9,000 still have not done so. Um, so there's a lot of people trying to hide their data, even though it's kind of the law that they need to declare this figure. And, and I think the interesting point here, um, and it's something that kind of we talk about, we, we've talked about quite a lot on the show, but this is about the gender pay gap. This doesn't even go into the other kinds of pay gaps there might be in different forms of diversity. So every woman around this table, I would guarantee you, has been to an event or has been on stage and been the only woman at a conference and so there's that there's that gender gap but there's also the fact that this doesn't even start to take into account ethnicity or um, uh, physical ability you know disabled people uh, people with learning difficulties anything like that we haven't even started down that route Um, I think there is something that we saw today um, that was announced today, actually, which I think you know a bit more about, Caroline, which is this fintech parity pledge. So I think that one, that industry in particular is trying to address it on a, a broader scale as well, not just gender, trying to make the point that it's not just a gender pay gap that's a problem. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, one of my favourite things is about ally, ally skills. So I think there are a ton of people out there, men uh, in particular, who are actually allies of women and try and do something about it. And so really what um, the FinTech Parity Pledge is about, it's a brilliant initiative by Sharon O'Day to say, look, um, guys, we know you want to help. Um, we know you're good people. So help um, get out there and help women um, by signing a parity pledge that says I'm not going to start speaking at events I won't appear on panels unless they are diverse yeah and it's not just gender diversity either is it that's the point it's it's broader diversity which which can only help everybody um what, what where do you go to sign up to that where do you go to find out more about that fairintechparitypledge.org I had a question about how is the diversity defined in the pledge is it does it have to be 50 50 or does it have to be some sort of Percentage. It says every reasonable effort could and should have been made um, to ensure diversity, uh, that there's at least one woman on every panel uh, that is not the moderator, is is what um, the pledge says. Um, I kind of know, as a producer of this show, it's actually really hard to find a woman uh, that is not the moderator on every show. Obviously, 
we do make every reasonable effort sometimes it's not achievable but it is obviously expected that every effort should be made in order to make that possible yeah and I think it's about um, men who are invited to panels checking whether it is diverse and maybe suggesting colleagues um, that could join and caring yeah whether absolutely. it is or That's isn't it. Diverse. I, think, I, think not the issue. I think lots of people do I think you know so I think it's about harnessing that goodwill and when people see things that are unequal or um, un- they're uncomfortable with don't just kind of look down and shuffle your feet awkwardly and sort of slope off but you know step up and say something and, and get involved and I think it's not even about caring it's about noticing because I think actually if you explain to a lot of people have you noticed that this this entire conference is hosted by white men who all of whom are able-bodied a lot of those white men who are able-bodied who are on the stage go no I hadn't even thought about it so it's not they don't care it's that they hadn't it hadn't even occurred to them um and those are the kind of people that you want to kind of just get it front of their mind and go well have you thought about having maybe somebody else on this panel or you know I know this that's the best thing anybody can do I know this person who is from a more you know has a has a different perspective because of their background so let's get them involved as well yeah, absolutely. It's all about raising awareness. Um, so, okay, we're going to move on to our next story, which stays roughly on theme. Um, and this one is from Digit.FYI, which is not a publication I've heard of before, uh, submitted to Fintech Insider News by SM Hart. Uh, and it is a survey reveals women are put off tech by the age of 15. Um, and this follows a Tech Nation survey, which reveals that 45% of women believe they do not have the skills to work in the technology industry. And 24% felt it was not a place for people like them, in inverted commas. Um, and 36% of young men surveyed aspired to work in the tech industry, and it was ranked the most popular choice of future career. Uh, but by contrast, only 13% of women desired a career in tech and of those who wanted to work in tech 70% were male and 30% were female um what do we think about this um I personally think it's really sad um but it doesn't sound that surprising to me however I'm no longer 15 and I thought times when I might have moved on a bit so that the average 15 year old girl is a bit more likely to get into tech than when I was 15 I don't know I think it kind of depends what is perceived as being the right skills to go into the tech industry and Typically, it can be perceived as wanting to code and wanting to spend a whole day in front of a computer. And actually, a lot of what makes takes good is their user experience. And that's about empathy and talking to customers and good design and good UX. And women tend to do really well with that. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I think that there's um, there's a couple, there's so many things at play here. I mean, you, you've got to mention that the confidence of young women, certainly in the UK, is at you know absolute lowest points in history as far as you know all the surveys are concerned. You know, so they don't actually feel that they can do anything, let alone tech. Um, beyond that, I think you're absolutely right, Veronica. I think people don't understand that tech also encompasses you know product people, strategists, designers. Like if you're a product or a strategist, then one of the best backgrounds you can have is an arts background. Some of the best product people I know have history degrees because it trains you to think you know AI companies people specializing in AI can't find doctors or physicists or mathematicians but they can find philosophers and they work really really well in that environment so I think maybe there's an education point here that you need to go out and say you know yes we need more women in STEM but also just because you want to follow a, a, a more arts-based path that doesn't mean you can't go and want to work in tech you need to know more about what jobs there are out there and um 
I don't know if it's true for everybody else, but in my day, careers officers told you to be a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, or, you know, maybe like a prison guard. Like there was no kind of, they would, you know what I mean? Like jobs that everybody knew. And my careers no... advisor advised me to get a career. They were basically like, come back when you know what you want to do. <laughs> Just get one. Yeah. Something. <laughs> I think everyone gets a prison officer. It must be some sort of coded into the system. Did you get that as well? Yeah, was that, I don't know what it is. is about it. They must I didn't get a prison officer. Yeah. No, maybe I'm not tough enough. <laughs> <laughs> did, 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 Caroline, did you do that um, online thing? Where you, yes, it was must have been the same thing. They must be sponsored by HM Prisons or something. I wonder what you guys said that both came out as prison officer. I could somehow see it. <laughs> I think it's probably worth saying that also we don't know what the survey specifically asked. If it was, do you want to work in tech? Yes, no. That's quite like a, um, mm-hmm. a sort of binary uh, decision. Um, the survey itself had a thousand responses from a thousand young people, um, but it also seemed to analyse uh 80,000 posts from 7,000 discussions on Reddit, which maybe is not the most scientific way to draw your <laughs> conclusions. Uh, does anyone have any thoughts on that? How, how do you even know that the person on Reddit is a 15-year-old girl? Like, I mean, that feels like a very, very hard You should way. never take Reddit exactly truth on anything. <laughs> it, could, it could literally be a cat. We've seen it happen. Yeah, so potentially on that note, uh, we should take that with a pinch of salt and move on. But uh, actually, I do have a point. I think what is needed are role models, female role models yes. that are tech experts. Like we need a celebrity, a Kim Kardashian of tech, because that is where it's really becoming an issue. There's no influencer to get these young girls interested in tech. Imagine if the Kardashians had jobs doing coding. It's, isn't Carly Kloss trying to do that? So what about models, a- a- Amber, Amber Atherton? Oh, I don't know who she is. Is that right? She made in Chelsea? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Quickly Googling that. <laughs> that is a great way to get younger girls more interested. It's just reframing it into a context they understand. You're absolutely right. And, you know, you just need Carly Kloss to post on Instagram. Guys, this is this is what I do or this is how it works or, you hey, know. Check out Amber. You know, she's running Zyper. It's pretty cool. And tech. I'm made in Chelsea. See? A, win- a, a winning combo, apparently. <laughs> All right, so moving on from women being put off uh, by tech to um, something else people are seemingly put off by. Uh, Sarah, do you want to take the lead on this one? Uh, it's a story in Business Insider saying that Brits are less keen on app-only banks. Yeah, so this was um, a, a survey done by the RFI group, uh, which found that 54% of people in the UK uh, say they would use an app-only startup bank, which was down from 54% at the end of last year, said they would use an app-only bank, whereas 78% had said they would do so at the beginning of the year. It's interesting, again, this is one that I would like to know a bit more about the methodology, like what question are you asking? Are you asking the same people? Because if you're going to say it's a change every six months, you really need to be asking the same people and going back. You know, If, if you're going to sample a panel repeatedly and try and establish a timeline, you you need to be asking the same people the same question over and over again. You don't, you can't ask different people that that doesn't work as a timeline. Um, I think the the other interesting thing is, you know, that said, there probably is a certain amount of there was a lot of hype at the beginning of twenty seventeen. And what's happened over the course of 2017 is a lot of the big banks have come out with some really interesting digital tools. And for those people who were thinking, oh, well, I'm really fed up, I can't do X, Y, Z on my phone, now they can from most of the major banks. I think there's also an interesting thing about, you know, which types of bank are moving into this digital space. So you've got, you know, the app-only banks who are challenging. So in the UK, you've got likes of Monzo and Starling, who you would say are challenging the likes of Lloyd's and uh, Barclays. But then you've also got third players coming in. So I was looking really interested uh, this week about the news that Goldman Sachs is going to bring its Marcus brand to the UK. Now, Marcus is effectively a consumer bank. It does lending, it does savings, and it's going to have an online investment proposition soon. So that is a challenger bank from an investment bank 
bank that's coming entirely online. Now, that's not app only, but is that a threat to HSBC? Almost certainly. So um, I think that this data is interesting, but I think there's a lot more context that needs to be put around it. Um, I don't know if anybody else has any any thoughts on this one. It's definitely an overpromise, underdeliver situation. As you said, there's so many challenger banks. It's a lot of hype. I think people have what I, I call fintech fatigue. So they have too many options, choice paradox, they make no decision at all. And, you know, I have a Revolut app. It looks a lot better than my HSBC one, but I'm still going back to the HSBC one because of functionality and what I can do in that app. So I think there's a lot of different things at play. But as you said, people are, the traditional banks are absolutely improving their apps so that you're, you, they are linking people in, they're keeping people where they are. Well, that's really interesting. What functionality does HSBC have that you want that you wouldn't get with either Revolut or, or any of the other challenges? So it's got all my accounts in it. It, it's still, it also depends on like how much money you want. You feel comfortable putting into a challenger bank, um, keeping an eye on my mortgage, for example, those kinds of things. So it has all of the stuff in one place. And there's things that I don't think Revolut or someone like that is offering. Does that play into the other part of the study, which says that 49% of customers trust that their bank can keep their money safe, whereas trust in what they're calling technology companies, which I think they've bled the line there between the app only and the tech company, but that, by the by, uh, is significantly lower at 27%. So is it that you trust HSBC more with all of your multiple accounts? I think people are not, I don't think that is such a big issue. So it's it's interesting because they should have, in this survey, also evaluated brand trust. I think that would be a good comparison to see if that if that's affecting this or if it's the functionality or if it's even stuff like customer service or aftercare that's causing some of the yeah. issue, perhaps. Because um, I think people are definitely more willing to trust a brand for some of their banking activity that isn't as well established as some other players. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing, when this survey came out the same day, there was the, the uh, British Bank Awards, I think that's what they're called, yeah, were announced exactly. the same day. And they kind of had it wasn't the opposite when you looked at the data they were presenting, but what they were saying was that people who have signed up to Monzo and Starling are very, very happy with them. Much happier than anybody's with Marks and Spencer's bank particularly came out very badly. Um, so, you know, the people who, who are there are happy with it. But the point about functionality is really interesting. And I wonder if in your case, Laurel, like you're saying that you like everything in one place, what about any of those aggregation services? Would you be willing to use something like Bud, for instance? Or is it still, you're, you're still kind of like wedded to the... To the no, I'm not, not at all wedded to it it's just that it has I think enough in it to keep me loyal whereas if I were to go to somewhere else it's going to have to have the same kind of functionality and I'm going to have to feel that I'm being treated as well I suppose because I think also a lot of aftercare issues have come up like customer service things aren't maybe treated as well as they just don't have the resource to do such a good job I, I, I sort of think about the Crossing the Chasm book. It's one of, one of my favorites, right? They're kind of, and you see the early market and the early adopters you know, flocking to the app-only banks. And I think there people are more interested by ease and convenience and they're kind of visionaries. They're willing to take a chance. And the interesting thing is what will happen in the later market, um, whether, you know, can they cross that chasm of adoption, where I think trust is going to be much more of a you know important play and there's something great about the kind of solidity and like physicality of the branch network you just know you know if they've got a branch then you know there's something you about can march that in. exactly <laughs> you can shout at the you know i mean it's not for me personally but i think like a lot of that is about signifying security you know it's the signifying trust it's longevity and the things that you know, do make a difference to how people perceive the app only banks i think it's a matter for the app only banks to uh, 
as well communicate on whether or not, for example, they are part of the savings protection scheme or any other mm. scheme that will protect your money? Because they, they do. If, when they have the license, they do. I mean, Monzo and Starling shout about being members of the FCS. See, I never get that the right way around. The Financial Services Compensation Scheme, FSCS. They, they do shout about that as much as they can, but I think it's lost. Do you know what I mean? I think actually, as you say, it's really important that they make it publicly and widely known, but actually the average grandma still doesn't know what that means. So they have licenses. They're just, they are just as trustworthy. Like Monzo and Starling are just as trustworthy as HSBC or Barclays. In fact, possibly more so in some ways. That's not going to be enough, though. There's got to be something else. And I think Laurel put her finger on it there, maybe where it's like the functionality. You've already got everything you need there and that kind of already having all those services available. I think another thing that complicates matters is a lot of them seem the same, the challenger banks. How are they, how are they different from each other? And if people aren't clear on what that is, then they don't go anywhere else and they just stay where they are. They have to see a clear benefit, a problem being solved. But they are moving. I mean, Revolut announced, what, one and a half million customers uh, in profitability like last week. It's clearly, you know, they're doing a lot right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A success uh, story, that one. And uh, speaking of app-only banks, our very next story um, is about the Monzo have launched their marketplace in uh, beta this week. Um, it's for user testing only at this stage, um, and it's only open to the first 200 people to apply to test in beta, which is uh, obviously quite... A reduced number so if you were part of that lucky 200 um, you will gain access to saving accounts offers from Clydesdale Bank, Shawbrook Bank, Oak North and energy switching services such as Bulb, Octopus Labs, Ovo and Tonic. Um, Veronique do you have anything to add on this one? I always like Monzo's um, communication how humble they are about saying we're testing in beta and we're trying to improve and we're listening to your feedback as ever and their uh, MVP approach of getting something to market quickly and just testing it with live users and also I really like the transparency that they're um, explaining what is the fee that they will earn on the services so that it's clear to the user that they are making money for referring the suppliers on the marketplace but at the same time they're just being honest about it I really like that yeah I mean absolutely and I just want to link that back to what what Caroline was just saying about how do you stand out to me the fact that they've got so many energy suppliers is really interesting so a lot of people right now have these challenger banks either because they're early adopters or they have Revolut because they can do things like spend money abroad really cheaply if you get somebody to hook up their direct debit the energy supplier that means that they have to stop just using monzo for discretionary income they actually have to have their salary in there or enough in there to cover that payment every month so that means not only does monzo instantly have more data about you it's got a direct debit set up coming out of your account and you've got more money going in and in my mind what that does is help convert you from a somebody who has a monzo card when they go abroad or to monitor how much they spend at pret to actually making it one of their primary banks. So I think that inclusion of energy suppliers is a really interesting uh, decision on their part. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, but I'm not personally convinced about it yet. Because I think when you're switching um, banks for, you know, to savings, then you're comparing, you know, money versus money. It's, it's a, a commodity, easy to switch. And energy, to some extent, is the same. But yet, with energy, there's so many different tariffs. And you need to know what you're currently on, how you spent before. And the kind of comparison is not... Um, purely, I had a quick look at their um, their diagrams, and it's based upon sort of the average um, off-gen spend for that type of consumer. But you know, if you're not the average consumer, then the comparison they're giving you as to savings um, might be pretty poor. So the question is, 
how, why would you use a switching service that you may or may not save money on, whether you are the average or not, ra- rather than using a proper energy comparison site where you could actually tell it how much energy you you are using personally and what tariff you're on? There seems to be so much more complexity in energy switching that goes beyond sort of the. But maybe average. people don't want that complexity. Maybe so this they is don't. this is just maybe easy. It's there. Okay, I could I could change. It benefits on the journey then, doesn't it? I mean, is, is it going to be seamless? Can you just switch over, or is there still going to be that kind of faffing around in the background yeah well it would be interesting to test it to be added to the beta um and at the same time because hint hint yeah Um, because uh, Monzo has been so clever in figuring out and studying closely what their customer wants for me I'm thinking oh actually they have done that research they have found out that people as you say L'Oreal want to avoid that uh, complexity and want to be able to do this within one app or did they Mm. Does anyone know how Monzo's marketplace will be different than Starling's? Uh, that's a very good point. I, I personally don't. I do think that Monzo, you're abs- that, I mean, that raises a really interesting point. Starling got there first. Yeah. They, were, they were slower to market. They were slower to kind of like make a big noise, but mm. they have raced ahead in terms of capability. And I think that a lot of that has to do with their kind of tech first approach. But um, you're absolutely right. I I don't know. I know that the providers on on Starlink to start with are quite different. They're more about pensions or savings or uh, investment, whereas this, as you, we said, just seems to be savings and kind of that energy play. But yeah, I think it's on who they've got on board at the moment as the biggest differentiator. But to your point, if I was Monzo, I'd want to make sure I was as different as possible from Starlink's marketplace. It's quite interesting that Monzo seems to have gone by category. You know, they've done energy and they have many players providing services there and then savings, whereas I think Starlink's marketplace seems to have just more one provider per category. Yeah, it seems it's a, b- a, bit a more broader mix broad yeah. rather than deep. And interesting to see how that plays out, not just for the bank itself and the ecosystem, but the partners who are uh, well, yeah. offering into that. You know. Yeah, you'd, you'd want, if I was Starling, I'd want as many different options as possible. But if I was Starling's partner, I'd want some kind of exclusivity deal. And I, I, I literally have no idea how that works. Well, uh, if you were not lucky enough to be one of the first 200 uh, beta testers and want to see how the marketplace works, uh, we have videos of the user journey on our insights platform, 11FS Pulse, which we affectionately call the Netflix of fintech. Uh, Go to 11FS Pulse to find out more or email hello at 11FS.com to request a demo. and next, our next story uh, stays with UK fintech, and it's a story in fintech finance submitted to Fintech Insider News by Schaff. Uh, and it's a story that is Atom Bank raises 149 million in their latest funding round. Um, this got a lot of people talking on Fintech Insider News. Uh, they say that the fresh capital injection will be used to roll out new products and services, building on the opportunities created by the introduction of open banking and PSD2, um, which takes their investment to date up to almost 400 million um and 39 percent of the fund has now been given by bbva uh my question is do you need 149 million extra to roll out new products and services um sarah you're rolling your eyes so maybe you should start <laughs> uh, well i think there's a couple of points here one take it whilst it's on offer like if somebody's offering you money take it oh yeah the other really interesting point here is that normally you would look at a fintech taking money from a big a big incumbent and think oh maybe they don't want to take too much money maybe they don't want to be wedded to that investor but actually the really interesting thing here is that BBVA's new investment has taken their share over the 30% threshold now under UK law once you have more than 30% ownership of another company you are required to make a bid for acquisition except BBVA and Atom have got a waiver a legal waiver in place that means that BBVA do not have to make that offer 
Now, if anybody can tell me how they managed this and how they've got around this, I'm really interested. So... What do you think that means, though? They don't want to buy Atom or they're just hedging anything. their bets until they've taken their share price high enough? Like. It, it could be anything. It could be that um, BBVA has been burned. It bought Simple and that didn't go very smoothly. Uh, on the other hand, it bought Holvi and that's going fine. Uh, it could be that there's something that we don't know about in the background, like the owners of Atom have got something in place which says we'll only take money if this waiver is enacted. Um it is that to me is the really fascinating thing. So I don't necessarily think the money is that interesting. I mean, Atom has already started doing international expansion. Everybody knows if you want to go international, you need a lot of money behind you. Um, I think I suspect Atom will keep going international for those PSD2 options because as we kind of cover quite regularly on this show, there are a lot of people doing a lot in open banking in the UK and maybe they're going to go somewhere else and play in a less crowded market. Um but yeah, that the really interesting to me is the BBVA has just taken its stake up, but decide, but you know, agreed to or decided to, depending on who this came from, not make an acquisition. But I mean, that's a huge amount of money, one hundred and forty-nine million, and I have to wonder how much of that is a secondary. Uh, we I, last time I was on this show we talked about uh, Anthony Thompson uh, leaving Atom, and you know, some of the shareholders have been in that bank for quite a long time now. So, how much of that one hundred forty-nine million um, went into investment, and how much was a secondary? Would be my question. Also, I mean, something to note is that Atom has been expanding its lending book, especially lending to small and medium businesses. And as we have discussed on the show before, it's a huge market. And so that could be their play that they want to continue to be playing in the SME lending market. And they definitely need a lot of funding for that. And BBVA could be interested in having more of a stake in that. That's true. I mean, it, it just seems to me that it's slightly similar to the story about Lloyd's last week, which is uh, it was that it was uh, spending th- three billion on a digital transformation over three years. But I the, really did roll my eyes there. Yeah, <laughs> quite, yeah. But the, I think the overall point that was raised was that story was um, a lot about a lot of noise about the number, the amount that was being spent, and not what they were doing with it. Uh, and the, and this seems very reminiscent of this. Like they're being quite vague about what these new products and services are and the headline is more about the money than what they're going to do with it but i think they could get through that money pretty easily to be honest i mean they're going to have to hire a lot of people it depends on what products they have on the roadmap but they're going to have to hire a lot of headcount that's expensive you could get through that pretty easily i mean i think caroline's point is is also you know definitely worth considering like how much of this is new money and how much of this is we're reshuffling we're paying off people we're buying things out we're moving things up please write in if you know more detail we'd really like to know (laughs) tell us the gossip spill the tea (laughs) okay so on that intriguing note uh we're going to take a quick break we wanted to let you know that if you love this show how about seeing it live We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. Uh, As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email, hello at 11FS.com. Additionally, some of our team will be attending the Fintech Design Summit next month in London's Marleybone, where fantastic guests from top fintechs, including Starling, TransferWise, and Zopa will be speaking, and you could join them. Register for tickets at fintechdesignsummit.com and enter our exclusive discount code 11FS15 and get 15% off the ticket price. Now on with the show. 
Um, and the next story uh, comes from Bloomberg, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Hustech. And it concerns Amazon in talks with JP Morgan over checking accounts. Veronique, do you want to take the lead? Thanks, Laura. So Amazon is in talks with JP Morgan and Capital One about offering the tech giant's customer a product similar to a checking account. If it happens, it would further inject Amazon into the lives of those who shop on its website, shop at Whole Food, use the Kindle, watch the streaming video, chat with Alexa, etc. Um, my question on this partnership is, would they be able to combine the marketing and data savviness of Amazon's platform with the JP Morgan and or Capital One tech stacks and to actually replicate what the users are are used to have as a great digital experience using the whole Amazon suite with the technology stack and what it enables on those big incumbent banks. It's an interesting one. I mean, I think this is quite clearly going to be an Amazon branded chase card, because if you look at the big retailers in the US who've tried to get banking license, it just doesn't happen. Like Walmart threw their hands up and, and walked away from it, you know, after going through the process for years and never never managing to get that license. Um, you say that, but I also think that, you know, back to a conversation we were having earlier, JP Morgan's tech stack is pretty good and their tech developers are pretty, you know, pretty on it. I think... I actually also think it doesn't really matter because I think what they go, what Amazon's going after here is a, a full a full stack place. They already do loans. They have Amazon Cash, which brings in those underbanked demographics to being able to buy things online. This is just kind of like the, the the cherry on the cake, if you like. So if Amazon has a checking account to go alongside its credit card and its loan, it looks like a bank. It sounds like a bank. It's not a bank, but we in the UK know all about those. We've seen all these fintechs that are backed by other brands and have services provided by third parties. So I think it's I think it's an interesting, it's perfect sense from Amazon's perspective. From JPM's uh, or Capital One, whoever they go with, perspective, it also makes sense because there's a demographic they haven't managed to reach before. They can use Amazon to get to these people. Um, and their data. Yeah, and their data. And I just think it's a surprise to nobody. Yeah. <laughs> this is their this. way of, be, of being a bank. It's very hard in the U.S. to get a banking license. So this this is the next best thing. Yeah, so, so the kind of question is whether it, whether the partnership is the way forward rather than disruption. But actually, it's kind of both. Like, they're partnering with the bank, but at the same time, disrupting the market by, as Sarah said, acting like a bank and therefore being used like one. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I as you know, as you just said, I think partnership is the only way forward. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, the wonderful Liz Lumley said it a few weeks ago at an event I was at, you know, Gaffer don't want to be banks. They're not that stupid. Like, <laughs> they, they, will, they will find a way to provide the services their customers want without going through any pain. You know, why would they want to be under the, the line of sight of the U.S. regulators? Why would they want to do that? It would be awful. They, they don't, absolutely. Over, it's overly complex. They don't. They are not interested. But if they can partner with someone who is giving them the same functionality and the offer there, then that's the easiest way for them to do it. It's the way, easiest way for them to get in. It would make as well like much more integrated experience for the user. So from a user perspective, then I would really like that as well. Although it will be only in the US to start with. Of course, it's always in the US to start with. But what we're saying really is that it's win, win, win. So it's win for Amazon, it's win for JP Morgan or Capital One, whoever they go with. And it's also win for the consumer if this happens. I don't know if I want Amazon though so into my life. It's already too much. But I think that's I think interestingly, I think that's an I think that's kind of an informed choice though, isn't it? Because we talk about, you know, what we talk about this quite a lot, you know, we we're in a little fintech bubble. What what do people outside of this know or think? Everybody knows Amazon. Everybody knows who Amazon is, what it does, 
And I would lay money on the fact they also know they have a lot of data about you. Like, if you're going to go into something eyes wide open, then then Amazon is it. So uh, staying with Amazon and talking about having your eyes wide open, uh, the the next story uh, stays on theme and is a story in Bloomberg, uh, which says that after losing China, Jeff Bezos really wants to win in India. Uh, Veronique? Thanks. Well, of course, they do want to win in India. (laughs) Who wouldn't want that? So Amazon are investing billions to win this market, which is like many different Indias into one. And reportedly, they made a loss of 3 billion last year and are investing a further 5.5 billion into this market. Although earlier we were talking about it and I checked and in 10 years time, that market could be worth $300 billion. So any uh, e-commerce player worth its salt will want to, to try and win in this market. They have clearly adapted the proposition a lot by setting up a credit operation for Indians without a bank account, built a streamlined mobile app so it doesn't crash the, the cheaper phones typically used by small town Indians, and loaded up the online store with tens of thousands of eclectic products, especially for this market. And a couple of examples are quite interesting, like butter chicken instant curry paste favored by the Punjab region or traditional Turan herbal digestive Um, that have been used apparently for centuries in central India. Obviously, they face intense competition from local players and the typical barriers to e-commerce adoption, which is like internet penetration, online payments and logistics, although they have made headways to adapt to the market. Yeah, I I think the story is really interesting because basically the headline says after losing China, they have to win India. So like they kind of conceded defeat to Tencent, Alibaba, etc, etc in China. Uh, And they're seeing India as a kind of untapped market. Um, But I I think you were saying earlier, Sarah, India isn't untapped, like Flipkart already exists as like the Amazon of India and Amazon are having to change almost their entire USP, uh, their delivery service, they're getting brand new products in specifically to cater to this market, like they're desperate to win India. I think one of the really interesting things was this quote, though. He says, it's barely day one in India. We are here for the next hundred years. I mean, how is that for burning your bridges as a strategy? (laughs) I mean, I will be terrified. You know, we are going to pour money in for the next century. I don't care if you're here today as competition. If you have lost China and you're committed to India, then that's a scary proposition for any competitor because Amazon have got a lot more money than you. And if they really are going to burn their bridges and focus on it then um you know we say flip cart should be afraid well i mean i think they clearly signaled intent here and that you know by publicly committing so much time so much money so many statements to it um you know they are saying we are going to play this out and uh, that's a powerful strategy or is it hubris, I guess? Well, well maybe. <laughs> like, but there's only one way to play it, right? Yeah, if you're going to fight... It does seem like burn, defeat is not an option on this particular yeah. one from, from what he's saying. It does sound to me as well, the story this is just like, it feels like Amazon has kind of, in, in the Western Europe and the US, Amazon's reached peak, right? It has as many prime subscribers as it's going to get because nobody else has any more money. Um, everybody else either uses it or doesn't for whatever reason. Like, it couldn't get any bigger. You know, it's, it feels like it's kind of reached the end of its runway in the US and Western Europe in those countries that are going to adopt it. So it feels like Amazon are going, okay, what do we do next? The previous story was like, maybe we do financial services. Maybe we start making commission of selling things. Maybe we get hold of people's money and their data and we start working with banks. Or maybe we go out and try some other markets and, and you know, see what's over there. And it, it feels to me like Amazon's going, we got there now what like now what do we do okay so we're gonna try this and we're gonna try this i mean 
personally, I think their their you know idea of partnering with JP Morgan makes a lot more sense than trying to take over India. But, um, but you're sitting on a massive cash pile. You've got to do something with it. Why not? But are they? Because remember how long Amazon took to make a profit? Like they took 15 years or something to get there, and they've only just managed it because they spent, 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 spent to get there, and now they're there. I don't do know. they have this much money I to pour into India? They're looking for it down the back of the sofa, yeah. though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, what they've traditionally done, Amazon, of course, is that they've they've spent to grow and spent every penny they have in growing. I think that's my point. It's kind of like they've grown as far as they can in in some territories. So, like, well, now, now they're we spending absolute keep, billions yeah. to grow in India, and defeat is not an option. <laughs> it it does. Well, I mean. I mean, they just made one point nine billion dollars. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I think the point is that I kind of these big bravado statements always make me go, "Hmm, what are you trying to prove, Sunshine?" Like, it feels like if you're going to go in there and say that, you've got, you've got a chip on your shoulder. And as we sort of discussed, it's China for Amazon, but um, but then you've got to fight, right? So if, like, you know, as they say with the Norman invasion, right? They burnt the boats on the, you know, they burnt the boats on the beaches because there's no alternative at that point. So it's a statement of intent. You know, we're going to, we're committed to the country. We're going to pour money in. Um, it's going to be um, embarrassing to retreat uh, as we have from China. Um, so maybe they're saying, forget the, I mean, it is bravado, but maybe it will also be what it takes to win. Mm. Plus, at the t- same time, it could be um, a defense strategy because the massive players in China, such as Alibaba, are um, funding their expansion overseas. And so if Amazon doesn't go after India and lets a local giant emerge, then that giant will eventually expand overseas into Amazon's territory. Or that giant is Alibaba, so they don't want to lose <laughs> India to Alibaba as, as well, well as China. That's probably more likely. <laughs> But it does seem like India would be very hard work. So Amazon is putting tons of money into it. I think they, they have a lot to, to, to worry about and think about there because there's, there's so many different, as we were talking about, different um, regional cultures and things like that. So mm. Yeah, it's not one country with one culture that you go in and you've already got all the millions of residents there. You've, you've got to take into account. It's the US, though, right? You know, it is one country, but there's so many different con- cultures, different states, different... But the infrastructure is there to yeah. kind of make the yeah. delivery and everything happen in an easy way. Yeah, you and then you're thinking about <laughs> India. You're like, oh, oh, my gosh, that's going to how are they going to get these packages there in drones. a fast way? And I know, yeah, <laughs> drones. Uh huh. All right. Well, we will we will keep an eye on that one and uh, see how it all pans out. Um, so from Amazon taking on India to nuns taking on Wells Fargo. Um, Sarah, I know you're a big fan of this story. So do, do you want to kick us off? Uh, Absolutely. So uh, Roman Catholic nuns have pushed Wells Fargo to publish a report on what caused the scandals that have rocked the US bank after they raised concerns about his ethics with Tim Sloan, the chief executive. Um, The headline's a little bit misleading, in all honesty. But as we were saying earlier, if you you could go with nuns, why wouldn't you go with nuns? Um, What's actually happened is that um, the the Interfaith Centre on Corporate Responsibility has basically, which which includes lots of different groups of nuns, um, have pushed Wells Fargo to to basically try harder. Um, they um, are, were trying to make them publish this report, um, which Wells Fargo has agreed to do voluntarily now, um, that will identify, and that, well, they say it will, identify the systemic, cultural, and ethical root causes of recent scandals, uh, which just as a reminder to everybody include mortgages, car insurance, uh, small businesses, uh, and last week the bank acknowledged it had overcharged customers at its investment and wealth management business, and the federal authorities were examined possible inappropriate referrals or recommendations and that is of course on top of the fact uh, the story that some people might remember from last year about Wells Fargo employees under extreme pressure ended up 
falsifying, uh, using customers' data to falsely open accounts. So um, you can see why people might call them out on their ethics. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's, there's a couple of things here. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a few things here um, that yeah, they, they might want to address. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if anybody wants to, 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 to chip in on this. I mean, the premise of the story is that Wells Fargo have been pressured into producing a report. It just so happens that, you know, this interfaith group have, have taken the headlines on it. I am fairly sure they are not the only ones who are pressing no, Wells Fargo so, to do this. So the article says that state treasurers in Rhode Island and Connecticut, uh, the trade union federal AFL-CIO and Rockefeller and Co. were also behind this. But obviously, as we were saying earlier, like a trading body um, investigating trading ethics does not write a headline so hence the nuns have made the news the nuns the nuns make bigger better news you know full horn sister act kind of uh here at this point you know but sister nora nash who has uh led the proposal uh is quoted as saying uh whilst Fargo were in a culture where they believe their vision and values have carried them for the past 30 years and were continuing to carry carry them uh obviously there was a tremendous risk in their culture and we need to take a serious look at the code of ethics accountability and really look at the needs of customers and community so they took an active stance in calling them out in what they saw as poor ethics and as a result they're having to kind of publish a report uh, while the report is obviously good because it's going to investigate these kind of dodgy ethics it doesn't provide a solution at this stage it just says we're going to look into it you say that but I think actually to go back to right back to the first story we said today like if you push somebody and force them to admit that they were wrong and lay their dirty washing out if you like then do they really want to ever have to go through that again like you look back through well, yeah, human obviously you hope that the report results in a solution well, but at this stage they haven't said that they're going to do anything about but it but my point being that if you look back through human history the threat of embarrassment works an awful lot better than the threat of punishment a lot of the time and I think that maybe you know know wells fargo being held out to a camp by a bunch of nuns you know that 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 board i would not be in that board meeting where they go what the hell do we do now like even the nuns are after sure us. Would help. <laughs> exactly exactly so it kind of i kind of see your point that there isn't like you've done this wrong next time you must do it this way but that kind of embarrassment like oh my god the people at wells fargo must want to like shrivel up and die at this point in fairness it does say in the story the bank has faced or is facing, sorry, at least three major probes, including one by the US Department of Justice. So, I mean, that's kind of a big deal, but maybe they're like, yeah, we'll do the nuns one first. <laughs> do, we, do we know if these um, this interfaith group's gone after anybody else? Because I've never heard of, I've never heard of them before. I've heard of, you know, religious and ethical groups uh, wanting uh, financial institutions. Maybe to this take is the first down. of many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're on the roll. <laughs> they're going vigilante. I, I don't know. <laughs> it is an interesting one. I mean, I, and it is part of like the broader conversation about banks financial services companies more generally and ethics and you know people actually really starting to care about what those financial institutions are doing with their money so you look at the rise of socially responsible investing you know people actually don't it doesn't matter if the money they're investing makes them higher uh, higher returns if it's being invested in tobacco companies or arms companies or you know whatever your belief is they're actually moving away from that and that socially responsible investing uh, uh, industry is growing and that's just another symptom and sign of the fact that people want want their financial institutions to be answerable yeah. Which leads us perfectly into the next story, uh, which stays entirely on the subject of social responsibility. Uh, and it is the company Cabbage's response to the Parkland shooting. Um, and this is the lender Cabbage, which is based in Atlanta, as response to the school shooting in uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School uh, in Parkland, Florida. As you might remember, that was a 
pretty tragic incident. Um, and a blog on their website, Cabbage has pledged to stand united with the Parkland survivors and their allies nationwide when they stage a walkout on the 14th of March, donate $100,000 to a charity chosen by the students of the high school in question to prevent these types of tragedy, uh, and to match $250 in donations made by employees, customers, and the extended community of friends and family, and kicking it off, the CEO, president, and COO of Cabbage uh, will each donate $10,000. And the last part of their pledge uh, says that we will not fund any businesses that we identify as a seller of firearms or ammunition to individuals under 21 or that sell or manufacture any form of assault style weapon uh, and we will implement this policy for existing customers as quickly as possible. This is kind of a big deal, really. Um, and in this pledge, this is a much, much bigger commitment than other bigger players in the same space. I was kind of reading up about it. The Bank of America has said that they will speak with their clients, uh, in inverted commas, uh, about shared responsibility. Um, BlackRock has also said uh, that it planned to ask gun makers and retailers that they work with tough questions, uh, again, in inverted commas. And so very much they're talking around the subject. Cabbage are taking action. They're taking a positive stance um what do people think about this one it's great yeah. i think we're going to see this happen more brands are going to take a stand on social issues uh, gucci just did something similar they gave um half a million to gun control issue so the, it's definitely going to keep happening people want pe brands to have personalities mm -hmm. so i think that also includes supporting different social issues getting involved in things people don't want brands to be neutral they want to see what they're all about and it, some of that is this they're also not the first ones to do it. So Lemonade, the insurance company, the InsurTech, which we talk about a lot on InsurTech Insiders, um, uh, did the same thing. So if you don't know if you remember the other, another horrific shooting in recent US history uh, back in Las Vegas. Um, as of October last year, Lemonade said that they were going to limit the amount they pay out uh, for damage of theft of firearms to um, an entirely entirely adequate in their words $2,500 if you own more than $2,500 worth of firearms you recommend trying somebody else um, our policy already excludes coverages for any illegal guns or gun use but in our next version we plan to add more protections around firearms including excluding assault rifles altogether um, which is you know as you uh, as you said what cabbage have, have just done you know similarly and um, I completely agree I think you know this is the beginning this is two big names we've got doing it but actually in fact, in, you know, talking about, as you say, standing out and talking about brands having an identity, if you go out there and say, okay, we're ethical, okay, we're green. But in America, if you go out there and say, we're anti-guns. It's a big deal. That's a really big that's deal. That's why the other yeah. ones that you've mentioned haven't done it, because yeah. they have clients that are probably I mean, NRA in, supporters in, uh, or something so like that. Cabbage has said they're uh, restricting firearms to those under 21, so I guess they haven't specifically said we're, you know, rejecting firearms manufacturers, yeah. but... Well, I think it's a step in the right direction, right? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I, I mean, I think the point is with both of them that they what they're doing is presenting what we all know exists, which is a responsible gun ownership culture, which exists in the rest of the world. Um, you know, nobody needs an assault rifle. Yeah, okay, have a shotgun. Go out and shoot a rabbit on a Sunday. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but I'm sure you can do that without causing mass bodily harm. Hopefully as well, if enough brands speak out like lemonade or cabbage and therefore enough consumers follow them, then we'll raise um, the dialogue on firearms and gun control to 
a higher level, which means uh, the political class will actually pay attention and will actually start to change things. Yeah, they'll follow the money. Like if customers start leaving exactly. their insurer to go to Lemonade or they, you know, if, if people, if small businesses stop taking loans from Bank of America to go to Cabbage, everybody follows the money. Also, if you want to find out more about Cabbage, uh, Sam Mool interviewed the CEO of Cabbage on Connection Interrupted. So uh, search for that on iTunes or your favorite podcast client. Uh, moving on onto a lighter note, quite literally, the next story concerns <laughs> Zinja's glow-in-the-dark cards. Veronique? Zinja has uh, apparently released a glow-in-the-dark card. Uh, because they're an Australian company, we can't get one yet, even though I want one because it will be very easy to find in my handbag. Um, is it just uh, a fun perk? Is it useful? In the case of Monzo, it has become a talking point, the color of their card um, and a chat-up line, apparently. So are um, Sinja wanting to be um, the Monzo in Australia? And um, it hasn't quite been the media sensation yet, as it, the picture only has six likes on Instagram, unfortunately. <laughs> maybe a, more of Maybe a couple more, yes. Um, what do you think? This is obviously in no way a cynical PR play and absolutely uh -huh. core strategy for mm -hmm. her brand. Oh, I'm sure it's really <laughs> important. Nobody ever. Yeah, I'm sure it's really important for the card to be glow in the dark. Uh, however, probably you, more airtime over yeah. ever. But I mean, I think you raise an interesting point. Like trying to find a dark card in a dark purse and a dark bag is quite difficult. So if it did glow in the dark, maybe that's you know. But that's it's going to absorb the light first of all. Like, yeah. Glow in the dark. It's it never, doesn't it's have never a light on work. it. Yeah. <laughs> but it is fun. It's absolutely fun. So. In the case of Monzo, apparently, the color wasn't about the branding. It was about making it a talking point and raising attention. And definitely, if you're maybe it's uh, aimed more at a nightclubbing generation uh, and you're in the dark and you're paying and that will be yeah, a talking point. Catch the barman's attention by waving your card. Exactly. Like, I can't imagine anyone's ever thought about this more. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we're just overthinking this. I don't know. Um, but in episode 164 of Fintech Insider, uh, Simon interviewed the CEO uh, of Zinja, Eric Wilson. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, he did not mention the glow-in-the-dark cards. Um, he didn't explain the himself. Strategy? What's going no, on? No, apparently it was, you know, it was not worthy bad. of mention. Um, but for more information about Zinja, uh, do check that out. Uh, and finally, we reach the last story of the show, um, which is a really fun one uh, from Fintech Finance, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Ali Patterson. Um, it's about a new GDPR Spotify playlist, which is apparently music to data protect Officer's ears, uh, which has been created by Donify, which is the cloud based fundraising CRM and donor management platform, uh, which has created um, a crowdsourced, apparently, GDPR themed playlist. I didn't think you needed a crowdsourced playlist, but no, that's <laughs> what it is. Uh, designed to aid data protection officers everywhere in their task to become GDPR compliant. Um, obviously, it's just an excellent piece of PR. Uh, the lighthearted playlist contains tracks from well known artists such as Ed. Sheeran, Blondie and ABBA together with title tracks that remind data protection officers of their requirements such as Call Me Maybe uh, by Carly Rae Jepsen and Return to Sender by Elvis Presley. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on this one? Very creative. Good. They did a good job. Yeah, I mean, it, it stands out as a piece of it's PR. It's only right? music though. There's no like educational part in there. 
I think they're trying to remind you of your GDPR responsibilities by some of the song titles. I think that's what they're saying. So the the um, founder of Donify, Robin Fisk, uh, is quoted in the article as saying, we know that database managers everywhere are focused on the GDPR deadline. So we thought this place would help them as they go about their repositioning campaigns and update their policies. Of course, he goes on to say, and this is obviously where the PR comes into play, mm-hmm. they could make their lives easier by switching to Donify, which has all the features needed to make this a lot easier. I was going to say, like, if I was data protection officer, I'd be like, I don't need this. I need stress relief. I need, like... You're, you're saying Carly Rae Jepsen isn't stress relief for you? This is 79 songs. While they go through their data permissioning, they this can definitely... This is the best thing I've heard about GDPR all year. <laughs> Hands down. Hats off to Donify. It's actually the most interesting GDPR story I've ever had to cover. So um, that's certainly in its favour. Um, I'm not sure it'll help, but, you know, actually... Actually, if there are GDPR officers who it does help, then do let us know. But um, I mean, some of the song choices are slightly questionable. Uh, Every breath you take by the police, maybe not that relevant. Um, it's the end of the world as we know it by R.E.M. But you see, that's actually probably the most accurate one you've said so far. True, but, you know, slightly doomful. Like, maybe many a data officer has said it's the end of the world yeah. as we know it. <laughs> True. But at the same time, I was looking at the level of fines that they're facing and it's 10 to 20 million euro or 2 to 4% of turnover, whichever is higher. So if that ever gets slapped on a company, they will want a bit of music to cheer themselves up. And Donify CRM for Charities is already helping millions of charities. I think they deserve a plug for their PR. Come on. (laughs) Well done, Donify. And on that note, that wraps up this week's new show. So thank you so much to all our guests for joining us. Where can people find out more about you? Caroline? I'm at C Plum on Twitter or follow at Fluently. Brilliant. And Laurel? At London Laurel on Twitter. Veronique? I'm Veronique at 11fs.com or at Magic Veronique. And Laura? Uh, at Loella172 on Twitter, don't ask why, or email at Laura at 11fs.com. And I'm still on at Sarah Koshansky on Twitter. As always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.